Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest in the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Folks, my guest today, Maha Abu Elanane, is a communications and PR expert with more than 28 years of global communication experience advising global corporate giants, high growth tech startups, top governments, and high net worth individuals. And Maha helps people and brands tell their stories to build and protect their reputations. She is the founder of Organizational Consultants and founder of Digital and Savvy, a strategic communication firm with offices in the US and Dubai. And she manages a personal brand for PR giants like, you know him, Gary V, and Patrick Mortelou, the tennis pro. It's pretty freaking awesome. Uh, some great, great, great clients that she has. And she has a reputation for delivering results from inception to execution with creative, strategic, and analytical drive. Raised and educated in the U.S. to Egyptian parents, she is home in both the West and Middle Eastern worlds. And I've had the pleasure to get to know her a bit over the last couple of years and learn firsthand how amazing she is. And I'm excited to share her story and wisdom today. So let's do it. Maha, welcome to the podcast. Adam, I'm so excited to be here. And thank you for pronouncing my my name spot on. That's impressive. I, I try. I mean, I think after 200 episodes, I've learned a thing or two about not insulting my guests by mispronouncing. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's so let let's get to it. So you know, as I mentioned before, early on, it's it's about the journey. That's really what this show is about. And you know, I've listened to a bunch of your shows, and you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me is your childhood. And you kind of had this thing about covering the news. What what was that first? memory that you have like how young were you what was like like i want to cover the news i want to be a reporter i want to be a journalist when was that first bug actually i i remember it distinctly so i was in college i was in grad school in a small town in minnesota called mankato which is like an hour and a half southeast of minneapolis home of laura ingalls wilder and little house on the prairie and i was an intern and it was like my first day on the job and i was in the newsroom and the thing about being in a newsroom is you get the information first before you share it with the public. So when you get breaking news or you get some information, that thrill of like getting that information and then figuring out how are you going to disseminate it? How are you going to tell that story? How do they broadcast it? How do they take information that came out of the wire of like a plane crash or something exciting that happened and turn that into something they need to start sharing and broadcast to the wider audience? So I distinctly remember that moment of that thrill of like being in that period between getting it and sharing it. And then the process of how you do that storytelling, back in the day, there wasn't that concept of storytelling or that buzzword of storytelling, but that's where I got on me, where I was really interested in the news business, in the story business. And so I worked in journalism, and then I shifted to the other side, 
to be on the communication side in PR. And actually, instead of receiving the news and disseminating it, I was the one telling the stories to try to get the news to pick it up. Yeah, and we're going to totally dig into that in a little bit. Do you consider yourself an extrovert? And and if you do, do you think that's what's critical to your success? Yeah, I 100% think I'm an extrovert. I mean, going back to what you were talking about as your journey and how you grew up, um, I my dad was a <coughs> business school. And when I was 14, 15, 16, I used to go with him to a lot of university functions and we would go into a big ballroom where he had to go do fundraisers or graduation events or different, you know, banquets that you do when you're in college with you have university right. functions. And he would just walk in the room and just leave me. And he's like, go mingle, go talk to people. So I got that confidence to go like talk to strangers. And, and that's how I really figured out, like, how do you have to be able to network and to talk to people in very uncomfortable environments? And I think that's what leads to, you know, what you're just talking about relating to, you know, being the storyteller and being in that room. Yeah, absolutely. So let's hit the rewind button here. And I want to talk about your move to Egypt uh, in the late 90s. And 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 tell me kind of the story here, if I got this right. Your your dad was actually the one that convinced you to take a job as, as a as a front desk manager. And you thought you were above this? Let's let's yeah. hit the rewind button. Like, dad, so, dad, what the what the hell do you want me to do? Yeah, so here's the story. Born and raised in Minnesota, lived there till I was 27. Ended up moving back to the Middle East, uh, to Egypt. I had only been there like on vacation and for holidays with family. I'm even though I'm 100% Egyptian, I was living in the U.S. my whole life. Get to Egypt, uh, start to interview to look for a job. I'm 27. So like I don't have like college friends and high school friends and right. network of people. You're an adult and you need to find a job. So I start to do interviews. You're either going to join a Pepsi or a Unilever or a P&G, like right. an American U.S. company, a multinational or you join a local business or a local brand. So I got offered a job to be the office manager for this um, this media business mogul. And I was like an office manager, like answering the phones. Really? Really? I have my master's degree. I just worked at General Mills. I was like, I felt like I had more qualifications than sitting behind a desk, answering phones and scheduling meetings and asking people if they like coffee. So this was back in... 1997. So there wasn't like a chief of staff or it wasn't that glorified of a role. It was really being a secretary. And I thought, well, 27 being a secretary, I didn't think that was a great deal. Anyway, so my dad was like, listen, you just moved here. You don't know anybody. This guy is one of the hottest people in the region. He's a very successful businessman. The office manager is like the gatekeeper. Like everyone who goes into his office will have to meet you. You will build a network. You will get to know everyone in Egypt. He has the most powerful friends and people and business and network. You're going to learn so much just by being around it through osmosis. So if I were you, I would put your head down. And I would take this job to the office manager of the CEO because I was like, oh, that doesn't even sound like a good career move on my CV. Like, how am I going to explain that? Exactly. And then it ended up being probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Why? I got into that job. I It humbled me a lot about what to do. I learned about being willing to listen, being willing to learn, being willing to put your ego aside to gain experience. I created an incredible network. 
My dad was 100% right. I built mm -hmm. uh, incredible relationships with people. I became the gatekeeper. I became very um, influential in ideas and decisions because I had a lot of knowledge because I was so experienced. I got to attend meetings. I got to travel with Amazing. them. I ended up, it ended up being like good that I had a master's degree in strategic ideas and strengths because I was able to add value. I was exactly. able to add value to his business and beyond just answering a phone or scheduling a meeting, I would be strategic in any time I spoke mm -hmm. up. And, it, and I, and it, he immediately after four months saw that switched me to a new role, then grew me to a different role and then grew mm -hmm. me to another role. Like, because I was in ground zero, my advice to you, if you get offered to be an admin to a chairman or a CEO, that is the best gift your career will have because you will learn the entire business and you will do the hardest part of any job because that is stressful. It's intense. 100%. It's a lot of pressure. It's time sensitive. It's very confidential. Like all the skills and muscles you will develop by doing that job will carry you forward Great and advice. beyond, beyond. And Thanks. if you're a pleasure to work with and you're really good with people and interpersonal, you made a lot of friends along the way that you can tap into going forward. That is fantastic advice, and and thankfully, thankfully you listened to your to your dad on that one. And and here's a pro tip for everybody else out there: if you are looking to get the attention or get an audience with somebody of influence, whether it be you know politics, business, celebrity, art, music, you best treat their executive assistant, office manager, receptionist as good as you want to treat them. This is golden advice, and I swear by this. And you know, it, it works. Right? It works I mean, it, and it's, it goes back. That's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's the right thing to do, but it also goes back to being a pleasure to work with because if you really treat the assistants really well and you really value them and you appreciate them and you don't treat them like they're a stepping stone into the chairman's exactly. office, then that speaks to your character and that they will appreciate that. And I'm sure that will you know, filter in in their conversations. Or if you have an ask or need a meeting or want a favor, that admin's going to go an extra mile to add value to you because you were so kind to them. And that's really, really important. Honey over vinegar. So let's move on. I want to talk about your role um, at Oriscom. And you managed communications for one of the largest acquisitions, uh, one of the largest IPOs in Egyptian history. Can you give us some insight into what that pro process looked like? Yeah. And, and, but before we do that, was there, during that process, was there one major almost, oh shit, fuck up that happened? A lot, actually. <laughs> so I want you guys to picture this. Cell phones that are on the market are the Motorola flip phone. They had just been introduced. There isn't one of the best phones ever created, by the way. Pre 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 smartphone, the Motorola StarTech, in my opinion, is one of the greatest inventions of the last hundred years. Yeah, it, they basically there were satellite phones that were in these big bags, and they had just introduced the Motorola Razor and the Nokia, this very specific Nokia phone that everybody had. Um, so mobile phones weren't prevalent, or cell phones weren't prevalent. Nope. So imagine you want to launch mobile networks throughout Africa and the Middle East, like to launch an AT&T or a Verizon. I was doing that. To get a license to launch an AT&T or a Verizon in Nigeria or Congo or Tunis or Algeria or Yemen or Lebanon or Egypt or Sub-Saharan Africa or Gabon or any of those countries, you have to apply for a license from the Ministry of Telecommunications. They are the ones that grant you access to use their gateway to the country and their infrastructure of microwave stations. All the stuff I had no idea about, but I but learned. learned. I learned. And when you 
get a license, you have to uh, apply for a license through a tender, basically an RFP, a request for proposal. And the tender has three sections, a technical, a commercial, and a financial. So they get the CTO, the chief technical officer, to write the technical plan of the microwave station, the design, and how the network's going to work, and how it's going to serve people, and not give people cancer, and blah, blah, blah. The second part is the financial, like how much are you willing to pay? How are you going to give the revenue sharing with the government? The financial. The third was the mar the commercial, which is basically the marketing and sales plan. So Nagib says to me, I need you to work on the commercial plans. I'm like, I I've never literally done this before. Like, how do I develop a prepaid and a postpaid plan for like a Mint Mobile or a variety? Figure it out. So like, <laughs> put your head down, figure it out. Figure it out. Long story short, we would go to apply for a license, we would win. Apply for a license, we would win. We got 19 licenses. Jeez. Imagine the imagine the amount of um, business that was created by bringing cell phones into markets. You were creating a whole economy for those countries and those people. Revolutionary. 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 Like to have uh, mobile phones in, in places where they don't have landlines and they don't have cables for internet. So we were putting up microwave Conne stations to give connecting, them access. Connecting people and villages and business and it commerce. Was extraordinary. Like I can't tell you the journey in Africa particularly was an ex incredible story, which I'd love to deep dive in more in, in a later time. Anyways, once we finished that, we wanted to take the company public. And I, again, I'm not an M&A girl. I'm not a financial girl. Every, anyone in my family, they can tell you I'm terrible with numbers, but I do know how business works and I do know how to read contracts and agreements. And I do know how to look at the financial health of a company. So part of doing an IPO and an initial public offering is you have to prepare something called a prospectus, which is a document that tells the investors everything in detail about your business and about your brand. Right. Guess what? I'm in communications. I know how to write. I know how to do storytelling. I got to help write the prospectus and help develop the prospectus. And then the at the time, we were doing a dual listing on the London Stock Exchange and the Egyptian Stock Exchange. So it's a dual listing of shares. You go on an IPO to sell those to institutional investors. Mm -hmm. Again, I learned how to do. Um, we gave the same presentation 108 times. We went like to Europe and uh, London and went all to the financial district. The road show, they call that the road show. Road show. Took an overnight flight to New York. Actually, I was on the very one of the very last flights when the Concorde flew. The from last Concorde. Yep. Last Concorde from New York to Heathrow to JFK. Yeah, to JFK from London to JFK. It's like a three or four hour flight versus whatever we use right now. And we got to Wall Street. We did the same presentation every day. Then we went to the West Coast. You know. Anyways, the company went public. We got to work on it. I think I have, when you do an IPO, they give you a deal toy, which is basically a statue or a trophy to say that you worked on this IPO. But it was the largest IPO in the history of Egypt at $300 million at the time, which back in 1999. That's a lot back then. That's, that's a, a lot. lot of money. That's like the, yeah. a lot of money compared to what it is yeah, now. Yeah, that's like, that's, like, that's like three board apes. Yeah. It's like to be boarding, but it's an incredible <laughs> experience um, to be a part of a public listing of a company. And then the hard work comes is not after you've done the IPO, but how do you keep shareholder value? So how do you communicate with your investors what you're up to? How do you keep that confidence in the business and the brand? So storytelling and communications was prevalent throughout, and it was really an extraordinary experience for me. Um, you asked what would be the big fuck up that happened well, or we keep it spinning in a way like lesson learned. Like, what was your big takeaway there? Was it was it the was it your ability to just 
you know, continue to build on everything that you've been working on and learning on and just build and execute quickly and be nimble. Yeah, I think for me, it was get out of your comfort zone to learn things you don't know how to do. And like, if you don't know how to like, I've never done IPO before. I've never been involved in writing a prospectus or supporting the fact finding and data gathering to make it happen. But it's like in really push yourself to learn new things because you don't know what's going to happen on the other side. And at least now I've never, I've never done it again, but now I have that experience and I know what it involves. So if somebody wants to do it or needs the thing, I've been in those shoes before and I've done it before. And you could consult on it and you could consult yeah, on it. So it's not, right. And, and aside from working with, you know, these, these top best in class companies, you've also worked with first ladies and prime ministers with their communications. Can you parallel the similarities and differences between working with a company and working with a political figure? Well, to be honest with you, one of the big missions I had working with some of the government officials, especially in the Middle East, was to teach them that a government should communicate like a company. You should think about your reputation. You should think about your brand. You should think about being transparent with your audience. You should think about sharing your policies or your brand messages. Like I, in the Egyptian government in particular, uh, they'd never had spokespeople for the ministries. You know, you are very used to seeing it. The White House, they get up, they do a daily press briefing. And I said to them, I said, why don't you guys have a website for the prime minister's office where you put in the minutes of the prime minister's cabinet meetings? They're like, oh, we don't do that. I'm like, why don't you have like a press conference or a press briefing? Why doesn't every ministry have a spokesperson saying what activities they're doing? Because it's going to help people gain more confidence in the government, understand what you're doing, understand the policies. Actually, it's one of the biggest things well, I implemented for the Egyptian government. Is, well, what was the resistance? Was it was it a was it a cultural <laughs> resistance over time, or they just is it is it not something that was top of mind and having that kind of mindset of a way of communicating to the people. It was, it just, it wasn't that they were resisting it. It's just that they didn't know that they needed it, that people cared, like people want to know, people need to know. And so once they set it up, every ministry had a, every ministry in Egypt today has a spokesperson because it's a program that I and, actually implemented for them. And that's legacy. That That is definitely a, a, Right. I mean, you've, you've, you've affected change. And like on that topic of affecting change, I mean, political consulting, you've written speeches that have literally become part of national, international history um, and, and so much around, you know, Egypt, which you love so much and mean so, cl- so close to you. Um, talk a little bit about speech writing. And do you put yourself when you're when you're when you're crafting these words? Do you put yourself in in the speaker's place versus a balance of coming from you? How, how I know it's an art. But talk a little bit about the science behind the speech writing. Yeah, it's actually an interesting story. One of the first things I had to do was I got contacted in Egypt um, that the they wanted me to write a speech for the prime minister of Egypt. And I was like, no shit. Never <laughs> met the guy. He's like, he's going to Washington. It's his first time that the president is sending a prime minister to Washington for a delegation visit. Usually the president goes. So he needs to give some speeches. And I'm like, great. Look, what do you want to talk about? Do you guys have like a briefing thing? Like what, what's the foreign ministry have some ideas of some policies they want to communicate or like and what's the political agenda so That's I can big. craft a narrative around that and like what do you guys want to talk about? And it's funny because I'd never met the guy. So I'm like, does he open like with a joke? Does he open? Like, <laughs> knock, knock. <laughs> like, is, his, is his style of communications you know, he would open with a quote or he's very like poetic or he wants to just get to, you know, the business like there's a style thing. And for a long time, I struggled because they like weren't going to give me a brief. And I'm like, what do you mean you're not going to give me a brief? And I'm like, what I did was 
what I am, I, I envisioned what would I want to hear if I was sitting in the audience? And that's the, how I started that framework from there. And once I, I said that mind shift in my head about if I'm sitting in the audience, what do I want to hear the prime minister of Egypt tell me? It immediately flowed because I put myself in the shoes of the consumer and I, I flipped the script. Instead of thinking about what he should say, I thought about what do I want to hear? And that's the big shift. And anyways, I wrote a draft Tremendous. and he loved it and he delivered it and it went really well. Yeah. And, and let's pause on that for a second here. And I think this is a huge takeaway for anyone listening. If you are doing public speaking, if you're doing podcasting, if you are doing anything where there's going to be an audience, the best way to approach it is to keep the listener, the viewer, whoever's on the other side, their experience in mind. Think about how they want to receive it, how they want to hear, how that's going to engage them. I mean, that was a huge game changer for me. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm, this is episode 207, 207. When I was at episode 20, I worked with my media coach, someone very close to me, Johnny Moon. And that was a big aha moment that we worked on is how to shift the show where I'm not just going down my list of questions, but I'm, I'm listening to the guests and I'm hearing in between the lines and I'm asking the questions to have the audience in mind. And that was that was tremendous. So definitely take that away. Um. So let's shift gears a little bit. And I want to talk about your journey uh, into entrepreneurship. And, you know, I've heard from interviews that entrepreneurship really wasn't your, your passion growing up. It really wasn't your thing. But you really wanted free reign over how you spend your time. How has that perspective uh, changed for you into now being an independent owner operator? Yeah. So I worked at General Mills for several years. Oh, let's um, not forget Google, General Mills, Netflix. Let's drop all those. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I worked, I worked, I didn't work at Netflix. I, I was there. Consulted. I consulted for them for five years. Um, right. But I was an employee of Google as an employee of General Mills. And I think, you know, I love working, obviously, they're powerhouse brands and big companies, but I wanted to have variety and I wanted to be in control of my day. Like, what kind of projects do I want to do? What kind of impact do I want to have? I love the experience at both, but it also was like, it's a personal journey too. Like, what makes you happy? What gives you freedom to do the most creative things you're able to do? Like, I love to do strategy and I love to write. And when you're working in a company that there's responsibilities for, you're not actually executing. You might be planning strategies or working right. on collaborating with others on things. You're not actually getting to do the writing piece. So as I can control, like that might be a job they have outsource to an agency or somebody else to do, but that's the part that I enjoy the most. So I wanted to have control over how I spent my time. And at the same time, I really wanted to work on projects that I felt I could have the most impact on. So someone would come to me and say, can you do a press release or a press conference for this project? I'm like, there's a hundred people that are qualified to do that. Even though I could do that, that's not what, how I want to spend my time. So it was really thinking about what projects could I have the most impact and, and bring the best intentions to. Hey everybody, first I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. 
This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B, a B2C. It's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. So what advice would you give somebody who has spent a number of years working for other people on the corporate side and they're, they're considering that transition into entrepreneurial life, working for themselves, and they're scared. I mean, it it's scary as shit. I mean, I, I did it. And, you know, for me, looking back on it, it was the greatest freedom. I mean, I, it excelled my career and my life, it, but it, it was scary. scary. It is scary. I mean, what, I mean, what advice would you give someone who was in a similar position to you? So first of all, it is so scary. My sister and I have very different paths. She works at General Mills. She's been there for 30 some years. Lifer. She's a lifer. Like and it. I'm like an entrepreneur, like I've gone here and I've gone there. We have different paths, right? And the idea of leaving a career where you feel the safety and security of a paycheck and the benefits and all this kind of stuff, it's scary to make that pivot. But here's what I would tell anyone who's thinking about doing it or who's too afraid to do it. Bet on yourself. Invest in yourself. No one is going to put you at the top of their priority list except for you. So if you think your manager or your employer cares about your future and your well-being more than you, they care about you, but more than you, that's why I'd say have the confidence to bet on yourself. Have the confidence to do that. One of the biggest things I preach a lot, and it's because it came from my DNA, is to be a lifelong learner. So always be sharpening your saw. Not because you want to leave your job, not because you're unhappy with your role, but because there's a lot of opportunities out there. I think a lot of people forget about the abundance of opportunities that exist. That's why the term side hustle became prevalent. That's why people have side hustles is because yep. you can have your passion. job and you can keep your security and you can do something you really enjoy, but you always have a little bit of free time to do other things like hobbies like a side hustle, like maybe start up your own business, like do that. So bet on yourself, um, invest in a side hustle. If that's something just to kind of keep you feeling a little bit safe, you don't want to unbalance yourself. But if you invest in yourself and bet on yourself and believe in yourself, you'd be surprised about how upset you'll be that you didn't do it quicker. Absolutely. And just to parlay on that, and you know, for those familiar with my story, the day that I got let go from Boehner and I sat with Gary, he said to me, the best advice that I ever took was double down on your strengths and stop focusing on your weaknesses. So if you put those two pieces together where you're doubling down that bet on yourself, you're going to set yourself up for success. Um, so let's talk a little bit about managing global crisis and, and your time at Google. And, and correct me if I have the facts here, there was a, there was a shutdown of YouTube in Egypt. Correct? Yes, yes. How the hell did you manage that? So that's a actually no one's ever asked me that before. So a couple things, and by the way, you've really done your homework. Um, the one of the things about launching, well, so when I was mm -hmm. at Google, we launched Street Maps, we launched Gmail, that's how old it was at the time. Uh, and we also launched YouTube. And YouTube has um YouTube.com.eg, which is Egypt's thing, or .saudi. So they have different .ae, which is the Arab Emirates. And one of the things about content in the Middle East, if there's, there's guidelines, there's community guidelines. If a video violates the community guidelines, then there's a formal process at Google and YouTube to submit a request to take down that video or flag a video because it's offensive or it's hate speech or it violates one of the community guidelines. Well, during the Arab Spring, there was a lot of um, of that happening where there were a lot of videos 
there was one video in particular which criticized and insulted the Prophet Muhammad, who is the holy, uh, the holy religious figure of the Muslim community. And so a lot of people thought that video was offensive and there was a request to take down that right. video. But what we discovered is, and we all know this now because we've grown up in the internet world, that there's ability to, it's like whack-a-mole. You could take down one copy, but then someone can make another copy. The next one, the next and one. There's like copies of everything on the internet that people are resharing and sharing. You can't ever delete one thing from the internet ever. I think it's very difficult to find a piece of content and then not have it seen in an article or in a page, like to find something and clean it up off the entire internet is impossible. So, worth it. you know, for me, that was actually a very challenging thing because I work for Google. I'm an employee of a company, a U.S. based company. I'm American. I stand for the company's values and principles for freedom of expression. But I'm also an Arab and I'm also a Muslim. And it was interpreted as insulting and it's my my religion. How do I balance this is tough. my personal this is tough. values versus my corporate duties? And that was a very challenging time for me. But I I leaned on my values. I leaned on my principles. Did and I really focused on making sure that I was culturally sensitive, that I right. was intently adhering to the policies and rules of the company because that's my employer and that was my duty and job and I wanted to do a very good job. But at the same time, I showed an incredible amount of empathy for the Muslim community wow. and myself because I wanted to be able to go to bed at night feeling good Doing about right not compromising my values because of my job. Did, did you? Who did you consult with with this? Did you talk to your parents? Did you talk to your dad? Like, what? Who was your confidants during this process? Who, who could you have well, these conversations with? Pretty much myself. So my parents had hmm. passed away. I lost both my mom and dad about a year okay. apart. So my parents weren't alive at the time. Um, but it was really just kind of just centering myself to my values and like, what do I stand for? And how do I want to think about this three, five, 10 years from now? When I get asked about this, this is 2011, we're in 2022. Um, how do I want to be like my 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 name and my brand and reputation to be seen? And I I did the right thing. You know, there's a saying of doing the right thing is always the right thing. And I, I really always. want to make sure that I, I focused on doing the right thing, not by Google, but by the community at large. And, you know, the community guidelines were clear. And, and even if my personal opinion, you know, differed from that, there's a difference between doing your job and being a brand advocate. And so it's not our job to advocate on behalf of other people's opinions. It's our job to interpret and to really be fair about how things are operating. And tr tremendous. And thank you so much for sharing that story. And it, and it talks about, you know, I, everyone talks about their why. Right? And we'll get to that later on in the show. But what I focus on, you know, Simon Sinek is all about the why and everything. But for me personally, it's something that I talk a lot about is your how how you go about doing everything, how you're viewed by others, how you conduct business, how you manage relationships. And that's something that I deeply admire uh, about you. And that's something that I've observed over the last couple of years about our relationship and, and your approach to relationships yes. and your approach to advising people on relationships. And how hard is it when you're working with high profile folks out there to ensure that who they are behind closed doors aligns with who they are in the public? And, and listen, we all have private lives. 
I mean, listen, we literally just saw that with, with Gary Vee, and that's a whole other topic right there. We should talk about off camera, but that was fascinating to watch as well. How much people keep private and, and how it aligns. So how do you, when you're working with high profile folks, I mean, is there, is there a process for you to understand who they are to ensure that you're able to consult them and who they are in the public? Yeah, I, I love this question because I think the it's one real. It's real shit right here. This is the world we live in. There's no, yeah. there's a, there's a blurred line. I mean, it's re, like who you are on camera is off camera, and if you're not that person, people are gonna find out real freaking quick. Yeah, the, the beauty of the internet is this transparency, right? Like you ain't gonna hide. You're not gonna fool anybody. What who you are is gonna be exposed. Like that kind of thing is very true. The thing about relationships, and I think I spend the most time in my career thinking about this subject is how do you, because a lot of people ask me like, how do you know all these famous people and how do you get to work for all these big companies and these big names? First of all, I work hard. I'm not lucky. I work really Work hard. your ass off. Work my face off. Secondly is I have relationships that I treasure and I try to find ways to give them value. My whole compass comes through value creation. So if I'm going to introduce A to B, or somebody wants to meet one of people in my network, I'm like, what's in it for them? And what's mm -hmm. in it for you? Can I bring value to A and B so that there's mutual benefits? And I really try to think about that. Like Gary's like very well known. Gary's got millions of followers. He has a network. He can pick up the phone and do anything. Why does he need me? Or how am I going to add value to him? So I had to figure that out. Like I had to listen. I had to observe. I had to see where is the area where I might be able to give the most value, right. either by saving him time, either by creating opportunity, either by creating a relationship or introduction to a new audience. Introducing him to somebody, opening a new market like the Middle East. Like, what are the things that I feel I'm uniquely qualified to do? Does Gary have? Has he been to Dubai? Has he been to the Middle East? No. Has he an air? Does he have Gary V in Arabic? No. Does Gary? So that's where I started. Why don't you come to Dubai? Never been in the region before. And correct me if I'm wrong. For free, right? You started consulting free. for him for free, and that's free. a whole other topic. The value of yeah, val the value of, of value. Yeah, a hundred percent. And now he has a Gary uh, Arabic V content channel. I built the whole team that started creating content for him. If love you guys it. look at that, he's got hundreds of hundreds of thousands of followers. So now he's disseminating love his message there. in Arabic. That's that's value. It didn't exist before I came into the picture. So I was like, what can I do to create value in a new way? And then how do I keep bringing value? Because like, great, you did that in your first week. You're, well, now what are you going to show me? So how do I keep evolving? And it's by listening to the business, figuring out where the opportunities are. How can I you know, put him on CNBC to talk about NFTs? He was one of the first people to mention the word NFT on national television. Yep. Pioneer. But you, but you set that up, but, but you're the conduit. CNBC told us that's the first time anyone said that word on the network. But you created that opportunity. You're, you're yes. a creator and, and you bring that and you bring it. How, how did you first connect with Gary? What was that first introduction? It's funny. So I was, it was the summer of 2017. I was in Minnesota and I was at the bookstore and my friend texted me. She's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm at the bookstore. I need a book. You got any ideas? I need some summer reading. 
And she's like, you got to buy this book called Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk. It's a very thin, small, green book. <laughs> and so I went and found it at the bookstore. They had it. I'm looking over to my shelf. They I got had, it right there. <laughs> and, I, and I read it. And I read it. And I was like, oh, it's about building your personal brand and how everybody's going to have their 15 minutes of fame. And it was before influencers were even influencers. This was an old book. And so I'm like, well, I have a personal brand. Like I've been consulting for Google and I built Weber Shandwick, this PR agency in the Middle mm -hmm. East. And I've done Netflix. I've done a lot of cool things. I work for Netflix. I work for Kareem, which is the Uber of the Middle East. Like I've, I have a record. I can scale what I do as a personal brand and teach people not the secrets of Google, but like, how did I advise them? How do I work with them? What secrets can I share from what I've I've done that a lot of people can benefit from the Google playbook or the Netflix playbook or whatever? And so that's why I created Digital and Savvy because I was too embarrassed to have it be in my name because like, what if it's bad or what uh -oh. if it's good or, you know, but the premise of the book says you should build a personal brand in your name. So I didn't follow that because I was scared because I didn't believe in myself. I didn't bet on myself. Not yet. Not yet. That was early. And then I started following Gary after I read the book. And he interviewed a woman called Sky, Cy Wakeman, who was launching a book called No Ego. It was all about drama in the workplace. Just fascinating culture about how people vent at work and how people create drama in the workplace. And she was a drama researcher of, of, of what happens at work. Um, which actually be fascinating to connect with her now that COVID is drama at the workplace is not in the office, but on Zoom. Anyways, um, met her really loved her story and what she was doing. And so I did what Gary teaches you to do. I DM'd her and I made a comment on her post saying, I'd really love to meet her. And wouldn't it be cool if one day you could come speak in Egypt? And I didn't, I don't book speakers. I don't have speaking bureau. I don't do that as a living. I don't know why I said that, but I know enough people that organize you events. Could, you could maybe, connect it. Maybe I could make it happen. So that was it. I just texted her. I'm like, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. It was the first time I'd ever DM'd anybody. And I thought, look what happened. So scary. Yeah. Do I hit the button? I hit the button. I like DM somebody like, how creepy am I? Like, I'm like trying Slide to- Slide right in, my heart. Slide into the trying DMs. To make it professional <laughs> so it wouldn't seem creepy. Very long story short, two months later, I was in Egypt. There was a big event my friends were organizing called the Rise Up Summit. I said, why don't we get her to speak? We got her to speak. She came. She had a videographer with her who worked at Vayner. And so I said, I want to meet Gary. I've been following him now for a couple months. We should open Vayner Media in the Middle East, just like I opened Weber Shanwick in the Middle East, a PR firm, but now a digital agency. I need you to connect me to Gary. And so he's like, yeah, okay, well, whenever you come to New York, just let me know. I'm like, actually, I'm coming to New York in two weeks. And he's like, okay, I'll send an email to the business development person, get you connected. So he sent an email to Alex, told him Maha's coming. She wants to meet you. Alex is like, great, I'll meet you. Go to the office, meet him. Alex D. Simone. Alex D. Simone. It's great meeting. He's like, Love him. Gary can meet you too. Maybe you can stay till tomorrow and I can get you a meeting with Gary. I'm like, great, but my sister's getting remarried tomorrow and there's like all these family duties and I have to be at the spot one and there's rehearsal oh, at night. So I don't think that's going to work. And he's like, just change your ticket. I'm like, change my ticket's going to cost me money. Change my hotel is going to cost me money. What if I don't get in? What if I don't see him? What if I do change my schedule? I get in the morning and then he cancels the meeting. And yeah, no more. my sister's thing. It's a big problem. Like, I don't even want to tell my big sister. Bad year. I'm not coming home because I got to go meet Gary V. She has no idea who Gary V is. No. Long story short, I went in. I spent about an hour with Gary. We had a great meeting. And that's kind of how we all connected. And then he's like, okay, let's dance. Let's dance. What was your first impression of him when you met him 
the first he's time. very soft-spoken very kind not what people think he is on the internet this brash junior it's not at all he is incredibly so insightful and intentful and and focuses and this thing that he talks about all the time of kindness and empathy it's a hundred percent real he's a hundred percent very very intuitive to the emotional intelligence and the minute you walk into his office, he feels that way. And he he doesn't know me. He never met me. He knows I'm from the Middle East. He knows I'm Muslim. He knows all those things. And he was very respectful. I took him to the region for the first time. He never did. I mean, he, he has that thing where he understands how to adapt in any situation with any audience. And it's just remarkable. And I and 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 I, I share the same experience because people ask me all the time is what's the difference between Gary? I'm like he's he's a real deal. He says what he means. He means what he says. He's not just his character. He really he really sticks by that. And I think that's that's a big misconception of him. And something that I observed. I first of all I adore your Instagram and I followed your whole journey from the trip to the Middle East to the Super Bowl to the NBA All Star game. And I can't even imagine how you kept that energy level up with all that travel there. But I, one of the things that I watched was was, was Gary while they were touring him around the world expo and all the different pavilions he was so respectful and he was so astute and listening and watching and learning and he's not this freaking ego celebrity that's that's walking around that's not who he is no not at all so i i, I go ahead so as it was about to say is is what part what are the parts that you have as much as you you can and would like to share what are those areas of improvement that he's looking to improve upon from that public image standpoint what are the ways he want he wants to improve upon Gary, like, honestly, like he wants to just meet people. He just loves people. And so I'm just trying to introduce him to people. He loves to bring value. Like it's, it's funny. Like, um, we just, I just introduced him to Deepak Chopra, uh, about a week ago or two weeks ago. And Deepak's got his own NFT project and he's got, obviously he's Deepak Chopra, but it wasn't, it was the very first thing Gary said. And the last thing he said was, how can I help you? Like, what can I it wasn't like, what can I get from Deepak? It's like, well, how can I help you? And it was just that that mentality first of how can I serve you? How can I help you? How can I add value to you? Is why relationships last long. Love it. I, I love that too. So let's talk about personal branding for a moment before we talk about NFTs there. And personally, I I, I personally think it's a bit of a buzzword. I, I do. I think it's one of these things that was kind of created um, because selfishly, I... I I think I embody who I am in every aspect. And, you know, for me, personal branding means reputation. Personal branding is who you are on camera, off camera, and what people say behind your back and about you in a positive way or in a negative way. But when people out there are looking to build personal brands, what are some real actionable tips to help people best present themselves in the best light in public? Yeah, by the way, a personal brand is about leadership. It's not about self-promotion. It is about how do you represent yourself because you want to connect with an audience, you want to acquire a customer, you want to promote a product, like you're going to have some objectives. But I think the best thing is like, even if you don't want to sell something or create a company or have a startup and you're just an employee at a company and you just want to have a good way of managing your reputation, having you thinking about your personal brand just means you're intentional about how you care about yourself. Like, is your bio represent who you are? Do you have a clean headshot or is there somebody else in the photo with you? Um, When you represent yourself on LinkedIn, 
is that really your best self and how you're like making sure you're clean and tight about how you talk about your career, not because you have an agenda, but because you care about yourself and you want to make sure that anyone who Googles you or looks you up, that you are actually driving that narrative, not like they're finding things on their own. So what you put out is the big part of it. And then what people find is the second part. I love it. That's tremendous advice. So let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about NFTs. And I've not spoken about this publicly on air, but I'm going to say it because we're connected here on this. My deepest, biggest regret, my biggest financial deepest regret is not purchasing the Friends one. I had alpha access to it. And I, I literally, I interviewed Gary on my show about six weeks before he launched. We talked about it off air. And it's really been eating my soul. But I really try not to live with regrets because you can't go back. I should have bought Amazon stock. I should have bought Apple stock. I should have bought. You can't. By you the can't, way, I buy one before it be two launches. I, let's let's go let's go check let's let me walk over to the bank afterwards and, and see if I could take a third mortgage out of my house on that one. But but here's what I did in kind of retrospect. There, the reason that I didn't purchase V1 was not because I didn't have the money, and it wasn't because I didn't believe in Gary. It was because I did not know enough about the space to do something about it and to make that purchase. And what I've done since then is I've used that experience to go all in on, I mean, we talked about it. I'm launching probably nothing talent on Monday. I've gone all in on learning and research and digging into some other NFT projects. And just like you do, I've been following you. I see you understand the vernacular. You understand the economics behind it. And it's not just about a fucking JPEG. That's not what it's about. It's about the utility and the access and the value. And if you learn anything from Gary, you will see what he's done with vFriends and the value he provides and what he's put behind it. So I want to talk about a couple of things here. One, how, how does the average person making 50, 60 grand a year even get involved in the NFT space? I mean, you see the apes, the punks, the vFriends out there, all at these, these numbers that are you can't even wrap your head around what one ETH is times 16 times 100. What is your advice out there for any noobs out there who want to dip their toes? And let's even take a step back there. When someone says to you, oh, freaking spending all that money on JPEG, you must be crazy. Yes, that's actually a very good question, Adam. Like thinking about, I want everyone to think about not about becoming an investor in the NFT space as their first step. I want them to think about learning why NFTs are going to be changing the way we do everything. What do they need to educate themselves on? So the introduction of the internet was Web 1.0. The and we thought we thought internet was like search engines and mm-hmm. you just get www on the information superhighway. Then Web 2.0 came out and we discovered it's all about social media. It's about apps. It's about, you know, that's what killed the Blackberries. They couldn't have apps on there, right? And then it was about e-commerce. And now Web 3 is blockchain. So a lot of people think NFTs equals art, but really NFTs is about blockchain. And what what is blockchain? Because I'm not, like I said earlier, I'm not a financial person, but blockchain is this ledger where you can basically authenticate the information or digital assets. So the concept of how NFTs are 
are going to be here to stay. So it's like having a website. It's like having a social media account. You're like, I ain't going to buy any of those JPEGs and NFTs. Trust me, everybody's going to have a wallet. Everyone's going to look to see what's in their wallet, their public digital wallet. Just like people look you up on Instagram or look you up on Google after they meet you. They're going to see who you know and how many followers you have. They're yep. going to check your public wallet. And so I think it's important not to go in and be an investor and to dive in and put money in something. Start reading. Start educating. What are NFTs? What is blockchain? Why does this matter? Why are people so excited about it? How is this going to change the way we live and work? How is verification and authentication of any asset going to change our lives? Imagine... Everything. A Rolex watch. Now you can tell if it's fake or not. Yep. Now when you go to a stadium, you don't have to buy a ticket from a scalper because it's going to be verified on blockchain. Your so career gonna... history, your career history, everything's mortgages, purchases, everything. Medical records exactly. are going to be authenticated on the blockchain. It's a very, it's a the ledger decentralized and ledger. No one owns it. Nobody owns it, and that's why, like right now, we rely on Google and Facebook and these mm -hmm. tech companies. And LinkedIn. So that's, that's the first thing. Second thing is. Back in the day, you know, when Apple stock and Microsoft launched and, and Google launched, like we weren't in on those companies. We couldn't like get in and make lots of money. But this is our time. This is our Microsoft stock. This is our Apple stock. Getting in early to understand NFTs is that space. So I'm actually launching an NFT project called Wellversed. It's a community for knowledge seekers because I want people to learn. I want people to be well-versed. We're giving away education for free because I feel like, what is Discord? How do you set up a mm -hmm. wallet? How do you use it? Why does this matter? Love it. We're in early days, guys, early days. Anyone who's in a hurry to launch an, an NFT project and make money, it won't be here a year from now. I love it. Um so back to the back to the question there. How, what, what advice would you give somebody who's you know making fifty, sixty grand a year? You know they don't have, you know, the money to jump into a you know a, a they thirty, forty k floor on a on a V friend right now. Like what, what advice would you would you say to them to dip their I toes would, in the water? I would ask them to join a couple of discords. I would mm -hmm. ask them to start learning and reading. I would tell them do not start investing. Do not start dipping your toe into water into the crypto space. It's a very like it's all of a sudden becoming, you know, you play pick up basketball and now it's like day trading. You have access to the NBA. Like you're not ready for it. Like you need to start from somewhere. Like you need to start like reading, listening, learning. Don't start investing money you don't have. Don't start like taking financial risks that you wouldn't do because the difference between NFTs and stock brokerage, like if I want to buy a stock, I'd have to go to a company and have them buy right. stock for me. You're regulated. Self. You are purchasing. You're the broker. You are the bank. This is my NFT. Uh, Collection is on your cold wallet right there. My cold mm -hmm. wallet. This is my bank. I, I mean, I got to be careful. Like you own it. What You're is so on that thing? What, what, what do you got? What do you got? What do you, give us? What do you, what do you got on there? Give us. What nobody, do you, what, what, nobody, what do you, what do you hold it? What do you got on there? I have some V friends. Nobody's oh, doing it for you. My point open, is. Open that kimono up. What do you got on that? You got any punks on there? I have some punks. Look at you. Well, I got yeah. it. I got in early. I'm not crypto rich, but I was like, took advice and took it and listened and, and watched and studied. And, and you know, I, I just want people to know, don't jump into it. And especially when it comes to the financial part, jump it's into tough. learning, jump into testing, jump into trying, but don't jump into risking financials because no, you're the don't do that. you have to manage it yourself. 
Yeah, and that's and that's one of the things I think about, you know, and, and the time ticks on. Oh, God, I still have a chance to buy a V1. I still have a chance. And now the floor is just crazy, but I'm not going to miss V2. I'm involved in book games. I invested into those. So at least I'm giving myself a good opportunity to not miss out um, on V2 there. So one quick hot take. Give us a quick hot take next two to three years. What's something that you would say that other people probably wouldn't agree with? Hot take on NFTs. Um, hot take on NFTs is going to be about utility, not collectability. Hot take on NFTs, I think a lot of projects aren't going to survive. Hot takes on NFTs, I think the hackers are strong, so we need to be coming up with new tools to protect you. They will get into those DMs you need. And that's one thing I really love because I'm involved in the BeFriends Discord is is these scam alerts. And they're they're, they're real. I mean, you look at those and they're like enticing and really understand who's sending it and how easy it is for smoke and mirrors. It's super easy. By the way, I lost money. I clicked on not a DM through Discord. I was trying to swap wrap. I was trying to wrap ETH. I was trying to swap it. Wait. And there was to buy this wool game and to get involved. And you had to swap something for something. And I clicked on the wrong link <sighs> for a second. I'm not kidding you, a second. And they siphoned all of the ETH that was in my wallet. Oh. And it was a lot. Oh. And then they didn't take any of my tokens, but they took all my ETH. And, I, and then they just moved on to the next hit job. And you can How see. How violated did you feel? You see, super violated. You can see who it is. And they took like a ton of money, but you can't do anything about it. No, it's not police. It's not regulated. No. You don't know who they are. I mean, for the most part, it's, you know, they're not doxxed. You know, it's not. They're, they're pretty anonymous there. So I want to bring it home here. And what's one thing you wish everyone would understand about the Middle East and the region? What's a big what's a big misconception? What's something that that you just wish from a messaging standpoint was out there? And part two on that is I would love at some point in the future as we build and continue a relationship. I told my wife this. I would love to go to Dubai. Dubai is on my number one list. I need to. Yeah. Hop on. on. (laughs) Go cash in your Delta miles. Let's go. So one of the things I think a lot of people don't know, like, is that the Middle East is a yes culture, not a no culture. Like, you can't do this in the Middle East. You can't do that in the Middle East. We heard you can't do this. You can't do that. It's actually the opposite. Huge scale on the entrepreneur side. Huge things um, in terms of building and growing. Like, they're small, so they can adapt in places like the UAE. It's a very small country. So they have a bold vision. They do things bigger and better than most people can ever imagine. The government has an ambition to have every government service be three clicks or less on your phone and never mm. going into them. They have a whole initiative called Smart Dubai. Egypt has more than 100 million consumers population. Yeah, massive. Massive. That's a huge market and a huge talent pool and a huge labor pool. So a lot of people don't think about stuff like that. I love it. So let's bring it home here. Maha, what is what does the word authentic mean to you? Being true to who you are and not compromising your values. I think if that's one thing I learned from my dad is you just got to stick to your guns. No matter how much people try to punch you or change you or influence you, you got to go back to who you are and stick to who you are. And that's value. That's reputation. That's longevity. I love it. I love it. And and what is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received that you take action on every day of your life? Really practice gratitude. Like it, it takes practice. 
And as you feel grateful for what you're doing and why you're here and how you woke up and how you're breathing and how you're, mm -hmm. everything's okay. Not a lot of people are waking up in those situations. No, definitely not. Definitely not. And what would you say is your superpower? What is, what is something that you do better than almost anybody on this planet that makes you who you are, Maha? Um, I think this, how to bring value in a very strategic way. Like I can figure out that secret sauce of what's the one thing that brings value in a strategic way that somebody else wouldn't think of it that way. That's a good one. And last but not least, you know, you look back on your life, you look back on your journey and there's been tough times. There's been hard times. There's been times that you were down. And during those times, you've had to pull yourself up and harness that inner tenacity to drive you forward. And in the same breath, when you wake up every day and you're practicing gratitude and you're so thankful for this life that you've had, this life that you've created and the value that you bring to others, what keeps you focused? What keeps you going? Maha, what is your North Star in life? I like to be uh, I like to be challenged. So I like new opportunities that give me a reason to be challenged. And I want to have an impact like I want to have a legacy like my dad was a legacy of an educator. He created some incredible things in his career and I want to leave a legacy that I helped people communicate better. I love it. This has been fantastic. Thank I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much for your time your wisdom, and sharing your journey with all of us here. Maha, where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Uh, at Maha Geber, M-A-H-A-G-A-B-E-R. And um, that's my Instagram handle. You can find me, obviously, on Twitter as well. And digitalandsavvy.com. That's awesome. And we'll link everybody up there. Hang with me one moment here. Maha, again, thank you so much for your time. I hope everyone listening, so many takeaways. Please follow her. Her Instagram is freaking amazing. I love watching <laughs> your journey all across the world, all across the Middle East. Uh, I'll talk about my Minnesota roots in a little bit. So hang with me for one moment here. And everyone listening, thank you for joining us on the podcast. You know where to find out more at thepodcast.com. Follow us on other social media channels. Remember, if you like this show, sharing means caring. Spread the word. Leave a review. It goes a long way. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever. But for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon. Jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search the podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.